we just uh, go ahead and pray and dive into things? Folks will be arriving for a little bit, but uh, those who are late will just miss out because we're merciless. Anyway, let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to reflect on the confession. Uh, we pray particularly as we discuss matters of great importance that uh, we'll be uh, aware of our own standing uh, in terms of how we stand in relationship to you, uh, but also uh, that we'll consider those we love and care about and what we can do to bring them to you uh, so that they can find themselves uh, the, rece the receivers of your grace. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, so we're in chapter 20, or I'm sorry, 32 of the Confession. And uh, I think um, we might be able to get into chapter 33 this morning. And the things we're talking about at the end of the Confession are last things. So the end. Uh, the 32nd chapter is entitled, Of the State of Men After Death and of the Resurrection of the Dead. So if you don't have it memorized, it's in the back of the hymnal. Just, uh, we don't assume that you do, but if you want to refer to it, that's where you can find it. You, at what page are, would 867. that? 867? Yeah. 867 is where chapter 32 is. So let me go ahead and read to you the second paragraph. And it reads, at the last day, such as are found alive, shall not die, but be changed, and all the dead shall be raised up with the selfsame bodies and none other, although with different qualities, which shall be united again to their souls forever. Now this is a remarkable statement um, because looking back at the first paragraph, that begins in the first clause, the bodies of men after death return to dust and see corruption. So this is the, the, the uh, apparent contradiction. I say apparent because it's not, because the same creator who gave us our bodies is the one who raises us and grants us our new bodies. But uh, there are important differences, um, but also continuities. And that's the challenge. How, how can we understand that the dead are raised up with the self-same bodies when we're told in the previous uh, paragraph that their bodies uh, return to dust and see corruption? Now, at one level, uh, the first paragraph is just um, something that we can all observe. We can say, well, there you go. Anyone who's actually witnessed death with regard to a human being or an animal, can see that there are changes and there are unwelcome changes. Um, and those changes begin immediately. And if you give them time, uh, they follow the course of nature and then you end up with the dissolution of the body. Um, I think I mentioned last week that uh, we're not as acquainted with this reality as our ancestors were. Our ancestors would often actually put animals to death themselves. Um, that's not a very common thing today. I mean, if you're a hunter, 
you understand this. If you live on a farm and you harvest, say, livestock, you understand this. But most people, uh, their only encounter with death is, and this is kind of a gross way to put it, is the grocery store. They go into the grocery store and there's a lot of dead bodies, but they're all under cellophane and in uh, ice, <laughs> preserved, you know. And when you look at them, you don't think, oh, there's a dead chicken or there's a dead or part of a dead, you know, pig or whatever, you know, because we've presented it in such a way that it's a bloodless and sort of packaged, literally packaged phenomenon. We don't think in those terms. Now, maybe if you're a very sensitive vegan, you think in those terms, but most of us don't. Um, but, you know, I've, I've killed animals, and um, here's a, an experience uh, with regard to raccoons. Have you ever seen, like, those, those videos on YouTube with people who love raccoons and, like, collect them and feed them? And I'm like, what are you people doing? Because <laughs> <laughs> if you actually had any, some experience with raccoon, you don't have that warm fuzzy. But uh, so there was a raccoon that was uh, raiding our chicken coop. And raccoons, when they get into a chicken coop, just kill, just kill, just indiscriminately. It's not even for food. It's just like there's a bloodlust that overcomes a raccoon and just kills everything. So uh, I said, well, I got to deal with this raccoon. So I, I got a trap, caught the raccoon. And then when I caught the raccoon, I called the town. I thought I was doing them a favor. I told the, you know, I can't recall the name of the department, but it was like the wild animal something. I said, hey, I caught a raccoon. I said, good. I said, what, uh, do you want me to bring it in? No. <laughs> what should I do with it? And they said, we don't care what you do with it, just as long as you don't let it go. <laughs> now, you can do it or you can have the vet. <laughs> and that's how the conversation ended. So I did it. But uh, there's, there's just a reality that, you know, we live in a world where death is something that goes on all the time, all around us. And um, if we attend to it, we can, we can see it and observe what is described here. But we go to this next um, paragraph, and we're told on the last day, such as found alive shall not die. So those who have not died won't die. That's the statement. But they'll be changed. Uh, and the dead shall be raised up with the selfsame bodies and none other, although with different qualities. Uh, let's think about that. Any, any suggestions as to how to make sense of this? I think that God won't judge people by what they've done. Yeah, we're not to that yet, Molly. That's, that's, the, next, that's the next chapter. That's chapter 33, Last Judgment. We're right now just on resurrection. But the statement, self-same bodies, that's the, that's the thing. So how do we understand it? Yeah, Jonathan. Um, it's a passage from John that you talked about last week about, uh, you say, unless a seed falls to the ground and dies. Um, how I've thought about it is, you know, a, a wheat kernel, mm -hmm. a kernel which goes in the ground, it, 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 it dies and become, you can recognize a wheat plant and know the seed that was planted. It, it's not... And you can say it's the same plant, but the one is no longer, and the other is now. Um, I, that's how I've generally thought about it, is, is, you know, your body will die, but you could, when we're in heaven, you will be able to recognize, oh, there's, there's Victor, there's my daughter, right? Um, not, the, not the same, 
um, yeah. very different, but the same in a, in a, in a way that, that, is, that is like the seed and the plant. Yeah, I, th I think that's, uh, you know, a set of things that, you know, anyone who believes scripture can affirm. I think, I think, I think I'm getting at is there is no natural sort of way to understand this. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, I was going to say, this, this is all kind of taken from 1 Corinthians 15. Um, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. So it is sown, it is raised. It's the same body, but it's sown one way. It's raised another way. It's a different body. So it's both continuity and discontinuity. Yeah, and I, I, I'm completely on board with that. I guess the thing I'm getting at is, is that if we were to do a microscopic sort of analysis of the soil, where the body was, <laughs> we might find that if we were really able to finally sort of, uh, sort of discern you know, the, the, the sort of the constituent parts of this particular person, we might be able to identify stuff there that comes from that person's body. But, you know, thousands of years go by, uh, you know, floods, you know, erosion, things of that nature, and that stuff is dispersed all over the place. So I'm just showing you the level of difficulty. I'm not, I'm not saying that we're talking about impossibilities, but in terms of a human be being's ability to appreciate what's happened and uh, what the promise contains, uh, there's no, there's no like simple, okay, every, every like it'd be different if we, if we were able to say, well, you know, saints, they don't undergo corruption. They're just bodies are in the tombs, right? If you dig them up, there they are. <laughs> you know, 3,000 years later, there he is. No, we don't have that. Um, so what we're talking about is a first order miracle. When I mean first order miracle, I'm talking about like something from nothing like the creation of the universe, ex nihilo kind of miracle, as opposed to lengthening a leg, which is what I would say is a 10th order miracle. <laughs> That's the kind that, you know, people that are uh, faith healers specialize in, you know. Uh, anyway. Well, I, I, when you look at paragraph one, it says return to dust, which makes you think of Adam. Yeah. So you kind of have a glimpse. It isn't exactly the same, but I mean, that was dust. Yeah. God created. And from the soil. Yeah, right. the, I mean, how do we explain that? You know? Well, that's my, yeah, that's my point, yeah. Yeah, uh, Blaise Pascal, who, who uh, you know, was a, was a great philosopher and mathematician, uh, he wrote a book called Thoughts, Pensee. I think that's how it's pronounced in French. But anyway, it was never published, but it was intended to be a book of apologetics. And he takes up this argument. He says, what's, what's more difficult, uh, to create something out of nothing or to recreate something out of nothing. <laughs> you know, that, that's, that's his point. He said, you know, if, if, if we can accept the first, then the second's just not a problem. So I'm just kind of anticipating the materialist's objection. You know, say, if the materialist were to say, that is so crazy, you know, how could that possibly be? Well, we take him back to ex nihilo, out of nothing. Yeah, Victor and then Mark. So I was watching the like a cold case TV show about this gal, and they never found her body or anything. But the guy that did it admitted to burying it, then taking it, and then incinerating it, making it ashes in the ocean. Well, they went back to where they they went back to where that he was that he said he buried her, and they found her DNA. Okay. 
So, I mean, I'm, 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 I'm with the first miracle thing, but there, there are things to consider. Yeah, you know, we, we do have the hair of pharaohs, <laughs> stuff like that, you know, uh, that we still have because, you know, there are these accidents of nature which preserve certain But, but I'm inclined to agree with you on the miracle thing. Yeah, I, I just don't know how you, how, how you, you know, the only other possibility is, uh, well, since the body's gone, that person not going to be raised, which is, <laughs> Mark. <laughs> Along the same lines, um, you know, physics, our understanding of physics and chemistry really comes down to, if you, you have a water molecule, um, there can be some variation as to the angle between the two oxygens, let's say, um, uh, excuse me, the hydrogen, but in terms of, it looks the same. There's yeah. nothing you can differentiate about these two molecules. But what we really are is information. I mean, we are a vast, millions or billions of sheets of blueprints yeah. that is individual for each of us. And so the fact that God, the, the fact that even our own bodies vary yeah. in terms of, I, I want to say about every seven years, they think we replace right. our, our body. And so right. what's going through our body is not, um, it's not permanent. Yeah. Instead, the information yeah. is permanent. And even that information has fallen. Yeah. And so it's, I guess it's like if you, if you said, we're, we're maybe um, a, a poor scale model mm. of what we ultimately could be with perfect DNA, yeah. perfect information. That's what we'll be. Yeah, that's a that's a great way to, I think, address the problem. Um, there's a classic uh, thought experiment in philosophy. It goes back to antiquity. The ship of Theseus. Anybody familiar with the ship of Theseus? So the, the problem is, is just this problem, this every seven years. So uh, are you the same, you know, when if we were to say, you know, 13 years ago, there goes Mark, and then, now there's Mark. Now, at, at one and the same time, we can say no and yes, you know, because no, it's like the, it's like the Herakl Herakl uh, uh, Heraclitus, you know, you can't step in the same river twice, you know, things are they're always moving, changing in flux. Uh, but at the same time, we can say there's the Mississippi. You know, how, how do you do that? That's the problem of identity. So the, the way the, the uh, thought experiment goes is the ship, uh, over time, has every part replaced. Every single part of the ship is down to the, you know, down to the hull, everything, nail, every, every little bit. But is it still the ship of Theseus then? And most people would say, yeah. Just like Mark is still Mark, even though all of his, and I'm, you know, or yourself or whatever, there's something that remains constant. And the, the you know, thought about information, I think, is a good one. Um, you could say that in some sense, we live in the mind of God. You know, this is, this is the way uh, Augustine thought about it. So I noticed Brian, and then we'll go to David. Well, I, I, I was going to say, I mean, whatever the the metaphysical explanation is, I think the importance of the statement is salvation is the redemption of creation. Yeah. You know, our bodies are objects of redemption, not just our souls. Yeah. So, and so however it's gonna work, however God's gonna do it, yeah. and I agree with you about how it's a major miracle, you know, like Jonathan was saying, 
the disciples could see that it was Jesus. Now he was different. He could walk through walls. He could keep himself hidden. He had a body that was set for the future, but it was still him, right? And so I think that's that's part of the importance. Yeah, yeah. I think related to that, when we think about spiritual bodies, they are uh, um, categorically different than, say, the Holy Spirit. So when we, when we think about spiritual bodies, we think about something that has limits, right? So even uh, s angels, right? They are spiritual creatures, creatures meaning created. Um, there's a point in time in which they came into being. That's what it means to be a creature is to be created. Uh, and they, and they're, they can be either here or there. They can't be everywhere. This is one of the things where uh, when we talk about, say, the devil. The devil, uh, if we're talking about Satan, he can't be everywhere. Just can't. <laughs> you know, like every time you've got a frustration, it's not necessarily the devil. You know what I'm saying? Uh, unless he's really got it in for you and he just follows you wherever you go. <laughs> so uh, when we're talking about d the demonic spiritual creatures, they're limited in the same way we are. I hope that doesn't disappoint you. <laughs> it's actually something that should comfort you. Because uh, when we're talking about, in terms of matters of scale, in terms of God's glory and being as, you know, compared to, say, demonic uh, powers, it, we're just, it's like, there's no comparison. Yep. Yeah, on that, back to that ship analogy, um, when you replace all the parts, uh, it's helpful to know that the parts were actually created by the master who actually designed it. Yeah, and designed so, it. Therefore, it has to be the same. Mm -hmm. It can't be just the same because it looks the same. So some people can look at that analogy and think, well, it looks the same, so it probably did. But no, it actually is the same because the creator, and that can't be anything other because the creator manufactured it to be that ship. It can't be. Yeah, what we're getting at is a very subtle um, um, truth that was broadly accepted up until the modern era, and that is that there is an essential character to things. So if we were to say this, you know, this, there's something there that's, that's kind of the essence of the thing. Um, when we're talking about human beings, you know, we can say, talk about their spirits, uh, we can talk about you know, how they've come to be who they are, that is what essentially makes them who they are. Um, Brittany, I saw your hand. Yeah, um, Ezekiel 37, the dry bones. Yeah. Ezekiel's told to just speak to them, and I know it's an analogy for um, spiritual birth, but these bones were previously people, and by speaking to them, their bodies were rebuilt. Yeah, so, right. Well, and, and it, that's always been also understood as an analog to the resurrection of the dead, right? So now the thing, though, is like and not like also. So there's continuity. So we can say, I can recognize you. But also there's discontinuity. There's something different. So when we talk about, you know, spiritual bodies, yes, the redemption of our bodies, but the bodies are different. They're transformed. Um, now, you think about the fact that they did recognize him, but they also didn't recognize him when we, when we think about Christ. Now, you could say, well, maybe they just weren't expecting to see him. 
you know, have you, have you ever been in a situation where you like see somebody you haven't seen for years and it's just a, a, an environment that you would never expect to see that person in and you're like, I can't believe it, you. You know, that's that kind of thing. So maybe there was some of that to it. Uh, maybe there's also the, pro the possibility that the Lord just didn't want them to recognize him. I think that's certainly the Road to Emmaus episode. Um, but then there's just the fact that there's something different. You know, we can talk about what he could do and things of that nature. And so spiritual bodies, um, so self-same, yet different, uh, and united to our souls forever. Now, one of the things I think, uh, you know, your, your statement, Brian, about the redemption of creation is really important is because there is the possibility of sort of taking teaching that emphasizes the importance of the soul at the expense of the body and running with it into heresy. So, for example, when, um, you know, the Lord says, uh, better to, you know, lose a part of your body than to have, you know, to lose your soul, you know. Um, the, obviously, the emphasis is that there's, you know, there are things that are, we, we can put some priorities on things. Um, at the same time, it doesn't mean that our bodies are worthless or irredeemable or, don't have a future. Um. You ever heard the expression, C.S. Lewis said that we're not bodies with souls, but souls with bodies? Yeah. And I think that that shed light on Adam really didn't become alive till he had a soul. Right. So the, the soul, you know, the bodies, and it says here the bodies united with the soul. Right. But um, it's just interesting to realize that there's life in a body, but you know, I don't think animals have souls, that's my personal opinion. But, you know, we do, and our mm -hmm. souls continue to exist with well, or without a body. Yeah, I get, you know, there, there are different ways to talk about, say, you know, souls. Uh, one way is to talk about animate, you know, things that are, are, have, have an ability to move. So, uh, or just live. So if you look at, in antiquity, people would say vegetable soul animal soul, human soul. They would actually make those distinctions. And what they were getting at is that different kinds of life have different kinds of life, <laughs> you know, based on what they were made uh, as. Uh, and if you've been with somebody you've known and they've died, uh, you, you, it's, a, it's kind of a shock because, you know, you've never been with that person without the soul present. And you can really, uh, arrest you. So I've, you know, I think I've buried maybe 80 to 90 people over my course of my ministry, and um, it's just such a striking thing. You know, I'm with a person one day and I come back the next day and you say, they're gone. And, you, and you're right, it's not, it's not just a figure of speech. Yeah, Steve? So talking about various parts, there's different arguments about whether we are bipartite or tripartite. Mm -hmm. uh, what is your thought about that and why is that important? Well, if we look at Thessalonians, uh, it's pretty clear that the Apostle Paul, when he breaks it down, says, you know, may you know, God preserve you blameless in you know, spirit, soul, and body. So he breaks it out into three. So I've always favored that just because Paul. <laughs> there you go. But in terms of how do you explain it, um, 
one way that people have thought about soulishness is kind of the more the the, the physical characteristics of your so, so that part of yourself that's affected by your, your by your body so you know for example i'm feeling down today and then we do a little analysis and we discover your serotonin level or dopamine or you know, it's, it's not where it should be that kind of thing um, but you can distinguish between that and the spirit this is a difficult conversation i mean i'm not like adamant about this right <laughs> i'm just like take paul said that you know i think it's the very end of first thessalonians or second thessalonians at the very end he's just sort of saying goodbye may and he's sort of saying hey by the way <laughs> may you know god preserve you you know spirit soul and body yeah. so back to this job i brought up last week chapter 19 verse 25 26 and this is where he says my redeemer lives and after that he says in the king james version puts it a little more grossly i guess is says after my the worms eat my body yet in my flesh i will see god yeah and that's really descriptive of, of you know every kind of thing that could happen almost yesterday we celebrated the uh, birthday of sylvia who died a year ago or so and i saw a lot of pictures of her and i remember her like i remember her soul is so uh, it's very strange a very young person and yet you know and then i thought what will she be like now right you know like this woman maybe you know we just don't know. Yeah, right but it it's the flesh is is gone and yet it's not <laughs> like he was talking about the information and it really makes you think more incredibly i think about god yeah, yeah, you know, I think when we're dealing with, say, materialists and they raise their objections, I think the response is, yeah. If I were a materialist, I would not believe in this either. <laughs> but I'm not a materialist. <laughs> I believe in God who made, you know, heaven and earth from nothing. And so this is nothing for him to do. But at the same time, you know, uh, there's a sense in which there is an ongoing existence in, you know, uh, God's presence that we believe is the, is the case, even though there uh, is still a resurrection of the body to, to, to occur in the future. Yep. One way to think about our current bodies and our future bodies is whenever God shows up in the Bible, people want to fall down and die right? I deserve to die, right? Because that's what God's presence does to them. Jesus... I mean, it's not like this warm, fuzzy experience that people talk about when they have, they have these after, you know, sort of near death. Jesus in the ascension now has a body that is fit to be in God's presence, mm -hmm. to be in the eternal throne room. Right. That's what we're going to have. We're going to have a body that is fit to be in God's presence forever. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, there's a there's a sense in which when we think about, say, clean and unclean in the Old Testament, we can think uh, maybe uh, an analog to that would be radioactive and not. Uh, we, you know, when, when uh, Moses says, I want to see your glory, and the Lord says, you don't really want that. <laughs> It'd kill you. <laughs> you know? But I'll give you a little favor, I'll let you, you know, see me as I'm kind of turning the corner. 
<laughs> and I'm, I'm out of you pretty much. And even that is too much. I mean, it affects him in such a way that when he returns from the mountain, nobody even wants to be around him. They're like, turn it off, you know, <laughs> put a veil over your face, that kind of thing. So that's what I mean by radioactive. When we think of, uh, when we think about, you know, uh, God as the warm fuzzy, it, that's clearly not compatible with those passages. Well, um, so different qualities. I know it's always fun to speculate about the different qualities, you know, but we're just speculating. It's not much that we can say with any uh, authority on the matter. Um, we know that we'll be like him because we'll see him as he is. But at the moment, we, we look at this whole matter as through a glass darkly. We just don't know yet. There's a lot that we're unable to discern. So rather than do that, let's move on to the next. Uh, we're told then that this resurrection is not limited to the just. Uh, number three, the bodies of the unjust shall, by the power of Christ, be raised to do dishonor the bodies of the just by his spirit unto honor and be made conformable to his own glorious body, which is what I referred to a minute ago. Um, now, one of the nice things I, I got is I've got all the proof texts. So this, by the way, is something you can get it uh, very easily online. There are lots of uh, locations on the internet where you can get the PDF of the confession with all the proof texts. So this isn't just a bunch of ministers making stuff up out of the air. They're reading scripture and trying to put it all together. That's the task and summarize it. That's what they're up to. Um, but um, when it comes to, you know, this, this matter of uh, dishonor and honor, we can look again, as you noted earlier, Brian, to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, in this case, verses 42 and 44. And there Paul says, so also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown in corruption, it is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown in natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. Uh, and then the reference to um, the resurrection and the two, uh, uh, you know, sort of, uh, final states, the next verse, 43, it is sown in dishonor, raised in glory, sown, I'm sorry, I meant to say John 5, 25 through 29. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming and is not, and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God. And they that hear shall live, for the Father hath life in himself, and so hath given to the Son to have life in himself and hath given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in which all that are in their graves shall hear his voice and shall come forth. They, they that have gone, done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. So there it is pretty plain, plain and clear. Um, so there is a future state that is embodied for both the just and the unjust. Again, I can't tell you much about it uh, in the sense that it's yet to occur. But there is the, an, an embodied state. 
And embodiment means that there are limits. Uh, at, we're in some sense subject to time. Um, I remember I have a friend who's a, uh, he's actually a PCA ruling elder and a physicist. He teaches physics at UConn, University of Connecticut. His name is Richard Jones. And we were talking about time and space and uh, contrasting that with eternity. And he said, it's a great thing that we have time and space because if we didn't have time and space, then everything would happen at all at once and everything would happen to you. <laughs> space is where, it make, you know, where we, things don't all happen to you and time is things don't all happen at once. So you need time and space to kind of create the sort of the the sort of the possibility of other people <laughs> and other times. I know that's not terribly um, easy to relate to, but, but it gets the point across that there's some sense in which embodiment makes it possible for us to have relationships with other people. I think, I think that's what I'm trying to say. Any thoughts about that before we move on to the next matter? You know something? You know an awful lot about everything. Well, thank you, Molly. <laughs> Actually, uh, I just look really good at talking about stuff. <laughs> anyway, um, so let's take a look at, yeah, Mark. Before we go on, just backing up to your statements about materialists. Yeah. Just to point out the remarkable nature of a new being like a baby that when you think about you know the reproductive process of having half chromosomes yeah. join and start with this renewed life yeah that, that is fresh and alive and it's hearts beating like crazy it's growing like crazy and you have essentially the same thing happening in your body your your cells duplicate they mm rebuild themselves you can eat whatever you want you can drink whatever you want you are going to die mm -hmm. you know you're on this scale going down to die and yet somehow god has ordered it that you put these two together which are really just halves yeah. of what we have in us and it all starts starts new. brand new yeah it is amazing so you have grandchildren i have grandchildren and even at the you know you know, at, at just a few days, you can kind of see a personality, you know, um, and make distinctions between kids. You know, it's, it's really amazing. But ma ma materialists yeah. ignore the miracle yeah. of that differentiation between new life and existing life. Yeah. They really ignore it. Yeah, very intentionally. Yeah, they don't want to go near it because it would call for gratitude and obedience and all sorts of things they don't want to have to deal with. Yeah. Well, let's let's address a, a, a another very large matter, and that's the last judgment. And um, let me read to you the first paragraph here. There are three again. God hath appointed a day wherein he will judge the world in righteousness by Jesus Christ, to whom all power and judgment is given of the Father, in which day not only the apostate angels shall be judged, but likewise all persons that have lived upon the earth shall appear before the tribunal of Christ to give an account of their thoughts, words, and deeds, 
and to receive according to what they have done in the body, whether good or evil. Um, one of the things that Paul states is a proof that the Lord Jesus will judge the earth is his resurrection. In Acts chapter uh, 17, uh, he's talking to Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, and he makes that point, this man will judge the earth. Now, the thing that's interesting to note about uh, sort of the, the intellectual scene in Greece, the, the idea of a final judgment was not new news. They already, that was already a, a very uh, sort, of, uh, sort of common uh, belief. In fact, Plato brings it up in different places in his writings. So they weren't necessarily surprised at the idea that there would be a judgment. Uh, what they were surprised was that there'd be a resurrection followed by a, a judgment that was being executed by the resurrected guy. <laughs> that was the big surprise, and that was the thing that they were objecting to. Um, but um, the idea that the world will be judged, it, now, have you noticed that there are, you know, maybe more people than there used to be who don't, uh, accept the prospect of, of eternal damnation, that, that hell is something that's just too awful to sort of uh, give any uh, credence to. Um, I've thought a little bit about this. Um, we just uh, reviewed a couple of articles for Touchstone Magazine where I'm an editor, and one of them was a review of uh, David Bentley Hart's book on um, universalism. And uh, the reviewer just demonstrated just how uh, inadequate his arguments were and stuff like that. But we had another uh, submission that was making the case for it directly. And, I, and I've, as I've thought about it, um, this is just an observation. I'm not saying this is categorically true. It's just been sort of the case in my own experience. Um, generally speaking, comfortable people are the people who don't uh, have a an openness to, or, or, or closed to the prospect of eternal damnation. Wealthier, educated, very comfortable people. Generally speaking, I, and like in my own experience, again, I'm not saying this is always the case. You might be able to tell me of somebody that was poor and struggled in life and uh, faced a lot of hardship that doesn't believe in hell. But in my experience, they all do. <laughs> and it, it got me thinking a little bit about uh, the whole reasons why maybe some people find it easier to believe in, in hell and, uh, than others. Um, and this, this brings up something I came across this week, and this is why I was thinking along these lines. There, there's a book out that was just published uh, entitled Troubled. It's uh, by a fellow named Rob Henderson. And he uh, pr uh, was a yeah, kid in foster care, uh, really had a messed up childhood. But then uh, through a series of remarkable uh, occurrences, ended up at Yale and then went to Cambridge where he got his PhD. So this is a guy that's kind of seen both ends of the world. And when he got to, to Yale and Cambridge, he, he was kind of startled by some of the things that people would say. Uh, and he, he coined the term luxury beliefs, which I thought was great. It's a great way to put it. Sort of like, 
Uh, and what, what he says is that there are certain beliefs that you can have that sort of distinguish you uh, as elite, but don't cost you anything. An example would be defund the police. So the people who suffer when the police are defunded are not wealthy people. Why? Because they can afford private security. They live in gated communities. They have zero downside to, you know, to sort of like defunding the police. Who are the people who are most likely to be harmed by the defunding of the police? The victims of the crimes, <laughs> right? Generally speaking, people who are poorer. So uh, we might say, well, isn't it uh, more compassionate to sort of like uh, be understanding and um, you know, sort of uh, have a permissive sort of sort of disposition toward criminals because so many of them are growing up in impoverished uh, you know communities. Well, actually, no, because the victims are usually their neighbors and family members. In other words, other people who are not criminals who actually are living in the same community, uh, and what. Rob Henderson says this is uh, a luxury belief. And his, th his thesis is that, the, that in order to distinguish yourself as a kind of enlightened person, uh, this is kind of like a, uh, an accessory. You know, it's sort of like if you have like a Rolex watch or a Patek, or a Patek Philippe, which is even more <laughs> you know, uh, exclusive and expensive than a Rolex. You know, you can wear it, and people can say, oh, wow, you're, you must have a lot of money here. You must be a really distinguished person or have great taste. Um, but when you live in a world where, where maybe the things that once set people apart and distinguish them are more and more common, lots of people have Rolexes. Lots of people drive Mercedes. And some of them, you know, don't even have a college degree. <laughs> You know, how do you distinguish yourself in a situation like that? Luxury beliefs. That's probably um, where the heresy, because I don't think they address any here of denialism. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like it's the marrying the two. Well, there's things, but then they, because yeah, denialism, it's an heresy, and somehow it crept, crept in the church in the last 100, 200 years or so. Yeah, yeah, it's characterizes certain, certain groups. And... You know, I, I, I'm happy to jump into that, but I'm just thinking just in general, the, the idea of hell as a, as, a, as a doctrine or eternal punishment or eternal damnation. What, I, what I was tracking with you, what I was saying yeah. was, they probably are like, met people halfway. Yeah, they're, 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 may, maybe they're semi-elite. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I, guess, I guess my thought is, is that when, when you live in a world that's kind of crazy and you're told there are no ultimate consequences, which is what, dismissing the doctrine of hell implies there are no ultimate consequences for anything you do. Uh, everything will kind of be, find a way to be sort of dressed or brushed under the rug, or since Christ paid, paid it all, then you don't need to pay anything, you know, all that kind of stuff. Then um, why not just do stuff? I think that people who've experienced really significant hardship find great comfort in the doctrine of, of eternal judgment. Everybody's gonna pay for what they did wrong. You know, so um, 
there is a, there's, now are you familiar with um, C.S. Lewis's book, The Great Divorce? Yeah. So you've read Great Divorce? Okay. Are you familiar with the, with the thesis of the book or sort of the, the storyline? Let me just fill you in real quick. It's fun read. It's entirely a thought. It's like a dream. So like at the very end, you just see this was just a dream. He's not saying this is how it actually works, but he's just sort of saying, you know, let's think about these things. So starts off with C.S. Lewis in hell. So actually, it's not as bad as it could be. But uh, anyway, he finds himself there. And what is it? It's London on a rainy day. He's walking around. He can't see anybody. There's like, and then all the shops are like shabby, and uh, in disrepair. And he comes to uh, a, a bus queue, so it's a bus stop. And there are a bunch of people waiting in line to get on the bus, and they're all arguing with each other. They're just, they just are miserable and. Uh, bitter souls and they're all there and they all know that they're dead and they're all they're ghostly and as they're waiting for the bus the bus finally arrives and it's an angel that's driving the bus and they all are resentful because the angel looks so so full of himself and you know, okay, okay. but they get on the bus and the bus takes them where to heaven they go on holiday to heaven and when they get there they discover that it makes them miserable Everything about it makes them miserable. Uh, for example, when they get off the bus, they're so unreal, they're so insubstantial, they can't make the blades of grass bend that are under their feet. So what happens? They're like razor blades that stick up and pierce their feet and cause them pain. And so they're like, ow, 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 as they're walking around. And then what happens is that they're visited by people that they knew in life who are redeemed. And when they come, they're as substantial and solid as you could possibly. In fact, as they, as they walk, the earth shakes. And so then each of them have a conversation. They all kind of single out a ghost and try to talk the ghost in one last time. And so these are people who have already been to hell. <laughs> and, and then the conversations that follow are an examination of why even the damned would not repent. And so in each case, none of them, well, there is one case. It's an interesting exception, but I'll let you read the book to, to discover what the exception is. But uh, anyway, that's, but what all, all Lewis is, is saying is, is that, you know, this idea that if we just give everybody enough time, they'll come around. And so the image is that of scattering. In fact, uh, when, so Lewis is uh, met by George MacDonald, who was a Scottish uh, Presbyterian preacher that wrote famous books in the 19th century that, he, that Lewis admired. And in the, during the conversation, um, they're talking about heaven and hell, and, and uh, hell you know, is described by Lewis as this vast place, and, and, and MacDonald says, no, it's not. It's actually very, very small. So small. <laughs> I'm sorry. Okay, so I'm not going to try to try to uh, imitate him. I'll let you imitate him sometime. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, he says, uh, "You see this little hole in the ground? There's like this little, just tiny hole." He said, "That's pro that's probably hell, right there." 
And Lewis said, it seemed so vast when I was there. And he said, well, yeah, <laughs> it would. <laughs> but this is reality. So heaven is real and hell is uh, a place of un the unreal, you could say, because it's, it's eternal destruction, everything coming apart forever. And in hell, it's, it keeps uh, the, the damned continue to, to uh, flee the presence of each other because they can't bear to be in the presence of each other. And so they get further and further apart the longer uh, time goes by. Uh, more time goes by and there's this conversation where he's you know that one 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 uh ghost says i you know i had thought that at least we'd, i'd be have the consolation of beating some interesting people <laughs> but you don't because you know they're so far away the ancients are so far away and there's this guy who had a telescope and he sees napoleon <laughs> way in the distance like like uh light years away you know but anyway so what lewis is doing is very imaginatively conveying to us and that's what the great divorce means he's actually refuting a statement i think it was oh who was it who said that the marriage of heaven and hell It'll come to me another time. It's an artist in the late 18th century. Blake, William Blake, right? William Blake said that. And so um, Lewis said, no, it's gonna be a divorce. It's gonna be a great divorce. The, these two, the heaven and hell will never be united. They just go their own directions. I'd rather be in heaven anyway. Well, me too. <laughs> Yeah, Becky. Aren't there people that believe God is love and so there can't be any hell because everybody's going to go to heaven? Yeah, so the, the challenge of that is to think a little bit about what uh, that implies in terms of love and freedom. In other words, the reality of our choices. So, uh, and then Lewis gets into that in some depth in the story. Any other thoughts? Anyway, uh, the, the prospect of a last judgment as being a, a last judgment is what we're getting at here, that this is a final judgment. You know, in our world, uh, we do the best we can with our judgments. Every day we have to exercise judgment and often we find that we're wrong. We misjudge somebody or misjudge a situation or whatever. And in, in the world we live in, there can be higher courts that we can appeal to if we're talking about civil law. Um, but even the highest courts can get things wrong. Uh, as human beings, we don't have perfect knowledge, perfect insight. Yeah, even the Supreme Court gets things wrong. So, but the, the highest court is this final judgment where everything gets sorted out which should give us comfort, you know, because there are people even in our world today who suffer because they've been unfairly judged. So things, things will be set right. Now, one of the things I thought was interesting here to think about, and it's not brought up, I don't think it's brought up, is um, when we're told that the apostate angels shall be judged. But do you recall the apostle Paul says that we're gonna participate in that judgment? So he's chastising the Corinthians because they're taking each other to court. He says, we should be able to sort these things out ourselves without you know, going to the civil authorities and appealing to, the, to unbelievers. 
And then he says in an offhanded way, you know we're going to judge angels, don't you? And I'm like, no, I didn't know that. That's pretty amazing. I, it's first I've heard this. <laughs> but uh, there's something then about the final judgment that will in some sense include us as it's not stated here, but I'm not really certain how to reconcile that statement by Paul without thinking that we're going to be involved in that in some sense. So uh, we're told that um, we will appear before the tribunal of Christ, give an account of thoughts, words, and deeds. That's an unnerving prospect, isn't it? I think, you know, often as we pass through life, we, we, we can at least retreat into our thoughts. You know, we say that's, that's you know, something that nobody knows. I may think certain things, but at least I didn't say anything, right? But I, I thought it. Even those will be uh, brought before the judgment seat of Christ. Um, you know, the intentions of the heart. This reminds me, this is going to sound really goofy, um, but I think that God in his mercy uh, has given us uh, an ability to kind of keep our thoughts to ourselves because our thoughts sometimes are not very worthy, right? Uh, can be embarrassing, and we're kind of glad that we don't have an ability to look inside each other's minds, or maybe we should feel that way. I remember an episode of Gilligan's Island. Anybody here remember Gilligan's Island? Somehow they ate something that made, them, made it possible to hear each other's thoughts. And they just couldn't bear to be in each other's presence after that. <laughs> they were all kind of like going to different parts of the island and living by themselves and unable to relate to each other anymore because they really, you know, it was impossible now, you know, to kind of keep your thoughts to yourself. So it's, a, it's merciful that we, we don't hear everything <laughs> that people think about us or other people don't think or don't hear what we think about right? But uh, that doesn't mean those thoughts are uh, unimportant or, uh, you know, uh, exempt from judgment. So this brings up an interesting thought. Uh, when it comes to, say, our understanding of the flesh and, the, you know, our propensity to sin, our fallenness, so there are many things that we're struggling with, you know, temptations that we deal with because of uh, the corruption of our natures. Um, that um, nevertheless are wrong even though uh, we may resist them. You see what I'm getting at? So when we think about, you know, our glorified state, um, our natures are going to be perfected which implies that God's judgment includes even involuntary thoughts. See, see what I'm getting at? Um, but let's give you, give you just a very mundane example. Let's say, you know, you see somebody in a room uh, and uh, your initial response is, oh, that man is so full of himself. Uh, I hate that guy. And then you say to yourself, well, was that a worthy thought? <laughs> You know, it wasn't. <laughs> maybe I'm misjudging him. Maybe, maybe even if that's true, that's not the way I should feel. <laughs> you know, those, kind, those kinds of things. Even those things will be transformed and changed and will be purged of those 
you know, we can say they're picadillos, they're small faults. We may even control them. We may even chastise ourselves and say, I shouldn't feel that way. I shouldn't think that. But the fact that you do <laughs> is something that needs to be addressed. How do you control yourself? Well, it's hard work. Um, I think, so Molly asked, how do you control your thoughts? I think our thought lives uh, often are, are working with material that we give it you know, or give our thoughts. So we can obviously do a better job of giving our, our minds uh, good things to work with. Yeah. Um, there are other things that maybe encourage, um, you know, a giving of ourselves over to some things that we shouldn't. It could be a wide range of things. Um, so, and, and then, but I think at the same time, we have an ability to judge ourselves. Isn't that an amazing fact? So like I'll have a thought sometimes that, and I'll say that was an unworthy thought. So I judge my thought. Just don't give myself over to it immediately. I, so I have an ability to sort of prescind my thoughts and sort of stand and judge my own thought life. That's a marvelous, a marvelous ability that we've got to do that. Now, being able to follow through and say, I'm not gonna think that way anymore can take a lot of work and time and you know, but at least you've got a place to stand, even in your, your person, you know, yourself, to be able to say, this is good, that's not good. I'm gonna to try to live for, the, you know, things that are, that are good. Yeah, Jonathan. Just like there's a mercy and a limitation with our thoughts. One of the things I've, I've thought about is the mercy that God has given in the limitation of our of our words, right? Starting with thoughts, words, and actions there. Um, we're created in God's image and we you know we have thoughts and, and we have we have the ability to, to speak. Um, fortunately, not everything we speak like happens. Yeah, um, or is truth. <laughs> God has many. God has His own, you know, mind that's far above what. He, but when He speaks, it's it, done. It, it is right. um, uh, the word of His power, right? Um, and and we are fortunate. We, we we can reflect that in ways, yeah. um, and we can, insofar as we echo. Um, right. and, but fortunately, not everything we say is right. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. So this is, that's why it's impossible for God to lie, because when God speaks it so, and it's just at a formal level, it's impossible <laughs> for God to lie. But uh, when it comes to you know, our thoughts or our, or our words, um, yes, they have uh, limits, but they also have lives that we don't control after they leave our mouths. So there's a kind of other side to that. So there's a fun story, kind of a Yiddish, tale of a rabbinical student. He goes to the rabbi and he's thinking about the 10 words, the 10 commandments, you know, when he's talking about false witness. And he's like, rabbi, maybe my Yiddish accent will be a little better. <laughs> rabbi, rabbi, I understand, you know, not killing, not stealing, but why the, why did, why did lying make the big 10? <laughs> and so and the rabbi said, oh, my son, I want you to do this, take a pillow, and go to every door in our community and place a feather from the pillow on that doorstep and then come back to me and I will tell you why. 
So he goes out and does, you know how these people are, these old wise men, they're always making you do stuff. And so he goes out, but all right, all right, all right. Comes back with an empty pillowcase and says, all right, tell me, tell me, Rabbi. And he says, first, you must go and collect all the feathers. <laughs> and he says, but Rabbi, that's impossible. The wind has blown them away. And then the rabbi says, ah, now you know. You can't really pull it back. When it spreads, it spreads. Falsehoods. You know, you got to be careful. Yeah. Can you talk about the difference, if there is any, between our thoughts and the darts of the devil? Yeah, yeah. So, do you remember Flip Wilson? <laughs> so, this really dates me. It's, it's Victor and I watch the same television the show. Made me do it. The devil made me do it. So, there is, a, there is truth in the fact that we can be tempted by, by you know, uh, demonic. Uh, beings. At the same time, we're bad enough to tempt ourselves. <laughs> so knowing the difference maybe is is uh, hard to to to, to discern. Um, I've had uh, situations in which I have been um, convinced that I was in demonic uh, a presence of, of the, the demonic. Uh, but most of the time, not. <laughs> you know, most of the time, it's just me. You know, I guess, I guess maybe when it's really the devil, you know it. I guess maybe that's the best I can say. Yeah, Mark. One of the things that strikes me in this section is this statement of apostate angels. Yeah. And then it says, but likewise, all persons who have lived in it goes through their deeds and words and so forth that it seems like they're making the point, the divines are making a point here that the, the apostates had a, their, the angels had a knowledge yeah. and a, a sight and that um, we as, it helps us I think understand what it means to be apostate. Yeah. Because it's particularly a warning to us yeah. that they've used that language, I think. Right. Because I mean, one of the things we always see in Scripture is when they encounter Christ or they encounter the apostles, the demons know way more than everybody that's there. They are tuned in to the truth. Yeah. And in, in this situation here, to be apostate is to be a degree of apostate. Mm. If you were an individual who was on the Sanhedrin, mm. who was a high priest mm. that knew that Jesus had died and the Roman guards had come and said, this is what happened, yeah. and you still suppress that, you are a level of apostate that's way different than the common Jew right. who heard about what was happening right. that was living there. And so I yeah. think that's... I think they're kind of building, yeah. by using that word, word, they're building a degree of, of you who've been given much. Yeah. You're going to be judged in accordance with that. Right, right. Yeah, I think that's, that's right. Yep. I was just going to say, there's the parable where Jesus says, the one who knew his master's will and didn't do it will get more stripes yeah. than the one who didn't. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Now, related to that, I think there's kind of like a minimum that we all know. But there is also sort of a, a scale of knowledge that increases. Anyway, well, uh, I've gone over time a little bit. I think next week will be enough to finish everything up, and we'll 
talk about what to study after this. We could always go back to chapter one, but I think what we'll do is something different. But let's pray. Lord, these are weighty uh, concerns that we have uh, reflected on. We're grateful, Lord, for the truths of Scripture that give us uh, insight into the nature of things that we wouldn't know otherwise. We pray, Lord, that uh, what we've learned today will uh, uh, be used by you to produce good fruit in our lives. Help us, Lord, to pray for our own souls, but also for those of others, and to look forward to the final day that we should look forward to with, with hope and anticipation instead of dread. And I say these things in Jesus' name, amen.